Cultivating Place is proud to receive support from the American Horticultural Society, celebrating 100 years of trusted, high-quality gardening and horticultural information since 1922. Also, by the California Native Plant Society. California is a biodiversity hotspot on our planet, and CNPS is working and CNPS is working to save the communities of plants and related beings and conditions that make it so. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Winter in the Northern Hemisphere is a time of dormancy for the plant and animal kingdoms alike. While it may look very still and quiet, it is in fact a period of unseen activity, worth looking at and learning from, for perspective and possibilities. This week is our final offering for your garden-based preparations for the winter solstice, officially occurring on December 21st at 8 a.m. Pacific. The solstice is not just a date and time, but a turning and inflection point in our annual cycle of growth. In honor of that cycle and its periods of rest, daily, weekly, annually, and throughout cycles of years. We're joined today in conversation with farmer, gardener, and community advocate Devorah Brous, with whom we explore the importance of rest, dormancy, and sabbatical as a way to refuel, to rethink, and to rejuvenate in all health and creativity for our work, life, and garden cycles ahead. Dev is the founder of From Soil to Soul, where she studies and guides regeneration on multiple levels. I am so pleased to be in conversation with you about this topic specifically at this time of year. Dev, welcome. Thank you, Jennifer. I am so excited to be here. If I were to ask you, to distill down into one sentence or phrase, your primary kind of motivating principle for your relationship with plants right now, at this moment in your life, in this moment in our world, what would that be? I love this question. I would have to say my primary, like the taproot that follows me through all of my work over the years is seeing the unseen aspects of why we plant where we plant. So the kind of the hegemony in afforestation, in urban planning, in landscape design, in land beautification, sort of the tactics, the reasons why certain neighborhoods that are affluent have access to more resources for their plantings than impacted and disenfranchised neighborhoods do. So that greening efforts by design are often about controlling the landscape for real estate rather than tending and stewarding for longevity. So I've introduced you in a really basic way um, in the beginning of the program. And we're clearly getting a little bit of insight already in your uh, motivating force behind what you do and why you do it. But give us a little bit more background on, on you and 
let's start with your earliest influences. Where were you born and by whom were you raised and who were the people and places and plants that grew you into a person for whom this would be really powerful calling and work? I was I was born in New Jersey on the East Coast and I spent um, many years very disconnected from the land. In fact, I didn't really have any relationship at all with nature. And when I began to delve deep into my roots to try to understand more about my lineage, I spent 15 years in Israel and Palestine. And today, I live in Los Angeles, which is a sacred land for the Tongva people. It's called Tovangar. And everything that I have done over the past 20 and 25 years has helped connect me to the culture and the medicine of land. So I think I would just begin there. Like I come, I, I, I descend from, from displaced and landless people, Jewish people, who came to this country fleeing pogroms and poverty. And so this kind of severed taproot of connection has compelled me to learn more about Jewish ancestral practices of earth-based, of our earth-based traditions, and learn more about like the regenerative and primal connection between land and sovereignty and wellness. Okay. I want to dig a little bit deeper into that answer with just when you, as I'm guessing a young adult, but maybe it was even older, there was some moment at which having been completely disconnected from land or land tending or, or the plant communities around you, you decided to dig deeper. What was that catalyst? Why? And, and as you were digging into your ancestral story, at what point did that intersect with tending land? Or did it start out as, as being associated with plant relationship and land relationship right from the start? Hmm. It might have started with Shel Silverstein and the giving tree. <laughs> I wasn't farming. My parents and grandparents were not farming. Um, but I, I used to cry when I would read this book. And, and now I, I cry when I read it to my children because it's, it's like it reminds me that the plant world is so generous, so abundant with its, with its healing gifts and also so exploited. And so mm. I became fairly consumed with identity politics and wondering why trees are often drawn in that book and in, in the world without roots. Like we see just mm. the top parts of trees. It's so interesting. I just didn't know enough about my own roots. So here, here in Los Angeles, there are massive ficus trees with roots that are on top of of the sidewalk and they are actually displacing sidewalks, like ripping out of the ground with their force, reminding us like who was here first. Right. And I think right. I was just very um, curious as yeah. a child, wanting to know more. Yeah. 
And that really circles back to your, you know, sort of primary objective in seeing the unseen, in finding those roots that you mentioned in your very first answer. And I, I love that. And so much of that also, Dev, has to do with when I think about myself and my own gardening and the, the conversations I have and the, the people that I speak with outside of the gardener relationship, how many people actually don't see what is actually already visible. They don't even see that tree because they're so busy. It's just a green blur. And um, so then moving deeper into seeing what we actually can't see um, is a whole nother level. We have to start to get people to just see the trees and then we can get them hopefully to see and feel the, the muscular force and urgency of what we can't see. So you start this this process. You're you're in New Jersey. You you go to your ancestral homelands of Israel and Palestine and you you begin to do this work. Take us on this pathway and the genesis for your professional work in this realm as as a farmer um you know, and I, I know that grows into being both an herbalist and a community organizi- organizer for land rights. But start us off with the genesis story of, of how this path leads you to the idea of farming. Mm. I love this idea that land is holy. And mm. I didn't understand it. But I remember the first time that I planted a tree and it was it had such an effect on me. Unknowingly, it led me to a place where I would be involved with nonviolent peace building and like holding a lot of olive branches over the years um, in the front lines of a contested land struggle. But I, I did my master's research on the beloved roots of this tree of life, like this epic idea that is mystical in its origins, but that a tree can have 500,000 species on the one stalk. And the unseen kind of magic and, and force of that has animated so much of my research and my work as a community organizer over the years. But I'd love to walk you through this kind of poetic exploration of the the planting of trees and sort of what I think is pretty unseen in the U.S. landscape. Uh, Many folks might know about the idea of like honoring someone by planting a tree after a wedding or a b'nai mitzvah. But what I came to understand through my research is really that plantings and greening as a whole can be wielded as weapons of war. It's not like you're just going and planting an olive tree and that tree will be celebrated to help further greening of a desert. The iconic landscape with kind of biblical silvery leaved trees that are 4,000 to 5,000 years old, like just captured my heart. And so I was writing about women that were smoothing olive oil into their hair and onto their skin to lock in moisture and how those trees were kind of 
family members. But I was also learning that 250 million fast-growing pine trees were kind of successfully waging a battle against desertification. And so there were these tactics of claiming land to revitalize and redeem the landscape, but also to, to sanctify relationship between people and land. And I started writing about how the people of the pine tree and the people of the olive tree were engaged in these kind of struggles as over 800,000 olive trees have been uprooted and countless, countless thousands of pine trees have been burned to the ground through arson. And like uprooting one nation in order to plant another nation like leaves this endless competition over resources, something that has everybody losing. The chasms between the people are just, they're vast and they're, and they're deep and they're a lot like, like cracked plates of the desert crust, like just deep, deep. My eyes were pried wide open from studying this and there's underpinnings that we, we don't see because green is this neutral kind of banner that everyone loves a tree, everyone loves a garden. So kind of my eyes were opened. Mm -hmm. And so your eyes are open and you become a farmer. What does that look like? And what, what does your farming look like in order for you to at least begin to reconcile trying to see what you, you maybe didn't see before or trying to ensure that your your installations as a garden designer, your consultations, um, your, you know, your herbalism practice, uh, and your, and your farming itself don't miss an important aspect that then leads it to being part of a problem rather than part of a solution. In order to get to putting my own hands in the soil, I yep. spent... 17 years um, as a, an executive director of different environmental nonprofits. And mm -hmm. I was learning the deep medicine of the land and I was exploring spiritual ecology and multi-faith uh, cross-pollination was really, really fertile for me. But I was looking at big picture issues. Um, the first nonprofit that I was working on was named Bustan after the original Middle Eastern form of polyculture, where we were at the intersection of civil rights and environmental justice, doing all kinds of work. And the, the Bustan, like just to kind of describe this, this image, olive trees, pomegranates and fig trees with grapes vining up the trees and vegetables and herbs and grasses uh, covering the earth between the diverse species, like these very fertile places where people would gather. And so we had Jews and Arabs gathering together in the effort to create what we referred to as facts on the ground. So like the peace movement can be very abstract if you're just talking in dialogue or protesting, like there's not much to show for that afterwards. But what we were trying to work toward was 
planting up landscapes that would draw attention to the need to recognize basic rights of all kinds of people in the region that are citizens and not having access to drinking water, electricity, uh, sewage, healthcare, and so forth. So we were planting trees together and we were doing kind of a creative form of protest, a sort of engaged stewardship. Yep. And a, and a generative. So it was, it was an embodied response rather than a protest. It was a, an embodied action forward, it sounds to me. Yes. And, and this was in, uh, in the Middle East that you began this work. Absolutely. This is in a part, a flagship project was in an unrecognized part of the Negev or the Nakab. And there are many dozens of villages where citizens are living without access to basic services. We worked in a place called village number 32, which doesn't appear on any of the maps of the state. And we, we created a mud building project where folks could learn the traditional practices of baika and adobe construction uh, from the Bedouin, where they were our our teachers. And this building that we created was an, an, an illegal structure. You can't get a permit to build inside an unrecognized village. And we built a medical clinic to provide services for the citizens who are living, 5,000 people living completely surrounded by um, agro and petrochemical factories and a toxic waste incinerator. And the, you know, the idea was like, we can do so much more because this is um, in so many ways, I feel like this is a life-giving form of community organizing. And mm -hmm. we, we worked with materials that were easily resourced in the desert. And we said, if the government's not going to put this village on the map and provide services, we'll have the international community do so. We'll have folks see what's happening in an unseen part of the country, in an unseen aspect of the conflict. Most people just know about the Israelis and the Palestinians at each other's throats. But this is a focus on indigenous Bedouin and uh, their own land struggles for sovereignty. And so like eventually, I got very entangled. We, we also built a school there and we did quite a lot of work to create um, like a, a sacred meeting ground for Bedouin and for Jewish women to celebrate traditional medicines and, and learn about delicate plant life in the desert. I just became very entangled and I ended up facing very strong pressures from the external landscape and I was really too young at the time to be able to process all of the, the poisons that I was unearthing between peoples over there. It was just, it led me to return to the US. And then I spent eight years running a nonprofit that was looking at how to catalyze churches and synagogues and mosques into utilizing their underutilized lands their unused landscapes for the purpose of growing community food sovereignty. Hmm. So we installed and catalyzed 34 gardens and we did some great work. And all of that too has led me to instead 
focus more on the internal landscape. This is Cultivating Place. We're in conversation today with farmer, herbalist, and teacher, Devorah Brouse of From Soil to Soul. Her growing work focuses on regeneration, including the importance of rest and rejuvenation for us and for the soil, plants, and other lives we live with. We'll be right back after a break. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible by support from the American Horticultural Society. Soon to turn 100 years old and still growing strong, the AHS is committed to integrating science, education, social responsibility, environmental stewardship, community, and joy that reminds us all of the vibrancy and relevance of good gardening in our world. Gift memberships to the AHS make great gifts for gardeners of all levels, ages, locations, and interests. Listeners of Cultivating Place receive a $10 discount on annual individual membership to the AHS. For the special Cultivating Place rate of just $25 a year, head over to www.ahsgardening.org forward slash cp. Cultivating Place is also made possible by the California Native Plant Society on a mission to save California's native plants and places using both head and heart. Of the Society's many programs of note, I am so excited to share more about their newest, Bloom California. This campaign aims to increase native plant sales across the state, transforming our gardens, parks, business fronts, and more. Over 85 nurseries across California have partnered to offer you Bloom California native plants. Native plants highlight a beauty unique to your region. They support wildlife and are climate conscious. Visit bloomcalifornia.org to find a nursery near you and look for Bloom California logos at participating nurseries to discover these beautiful California native plants ready to make their homes in your garden. Hey, it's Jennifer. One of the things that comes up for me as Dev and I begin the exploration around sabbatical and resting, fallow times like winter, is the importance, as she highlights it, of allowing us to see the unseen. And this from the perspective of a gardener with no formal religious affiliation, but who sees the cycles of the annual growing year as the structure on which I place my deepest, widest faith. Periods of rest and fallowing or wintering allow us to see the unseen, whether that be the holiness in every garden or the sharp relief of our own fatigue. There are lessons that rest and laying fallow can teach us that we would not see otherwise. Like that bird who visibly lit on the branch of the tree where, now that the leaves were down, Camille Dungy could see him as she noted in her final poem she read last week. Slowing down and taking a rest allows us 
to regenerate from the inside out. It allows us to dream. It allows our gardens to do the same. And it allows us to see where things want to go, like the water and the birds and the other migrators. It allows us to see where the land and plants want to grow. And from that seeing, we grow better as gardeners. Use your wintering wisely, my friends, and enjoy a deep rest. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This is Cultivating Place. Herbalist and teacher Devorah Browse is the founder of From Soil to Soul. Her growing work focuses on regeneration, including the importance of rest and rejuvenation. As we come back, Dev shares more about how her work in the Middle East led her to burnout, and we go on to explore the ancient idea behind rest and sabbatical the nights of days, the winter season, and even sabbatical years? Well, I'd have to say that my work led me into the teeth of burnout. Yep. I became really (laughs) dried up from the front lines organizing, and the plants guided me back. And so the embodied practices of homesteading and, and kind of kicking off my shoes and putting my own hands in the soil rather than just so much about the fight um, just brings me into this place where today I kind of feel like I have this um, like this superpower to see what's unseen or to kind of like work with the plants and help clients to experientially um, tap their own inner landscapes and see for themselves what's an unseen. And I suppose that there's kind of, it's a really big leap to go from where I was to where I am. And it's always really tricky for me to try to articulate just how vast um, that, 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 that chasm is. But yesterday when I was talking with a friend of mine from Lebanon, Samar, um, she was sharing that she has only 30 minutes of electricity a day to charge her phone. And so she was unable to speak. And we do some like kind of shared study of herbal plants. Um, and she was unable to speak. And we'll have to talk again tomorrow instead. And I, I also was speaking yesterday with a friend of mine, Mariam, from a different unrecognized village. And she's an herbalist as well. She lives in an unrecognized village without any electricity. So both of these women that I'm in deep study with are kind of luminaries for me that even though the conditions out there can be extremely difficult in the external landscape, if they're um, given the time and the will to tap into the inner landscape, we can try to find the, the the medicine of the plants, and it's like it's 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 Hanukkah right now, and so we're working with light and and darkness, and 
I can't just see the light in these dark, dark days right now um, without thinking about how some of the other people around the world are engaged with um, the plants and plant medicines under extremely repressive um, regimes and conditions. Conditions, yeah, yeah. Yes, and I, I mean, in the Northern Hemisphere, again, as we are moving towards the solstice, um, we're speaking on the fifth day of Hanukkah, we're in Advent, but the moon and the stars, no matter where you are in, in the faith world, um, the moon and stars and earth are working together as well to bring us the health of darkness and the health of, of rest in these times for us and for the plants and for the animals all around us. And to me, it's one of the greatest gifts of the garden, this it, it might be unseen in the, you know, in the every day, but then one day you wake up and you're say, you know, oh, it's so much darker this morning, or, oh, it's so much darker this evening. Mm -hmm. And you go out into the garden and you see, you know, which of your plant friends have moved into dormancy, have dropped their leaves, have, you know, dispersed their seed, have um, done whatever they need to do to rest at this time. Even the evergreens, you know, are shedding their, their leaves from last year and setting bud for next year. And no matter if your conscious brain pays attention to it, your body knows this is happening uh, with the light, with the plants, with the planet. And it's, to me, this in incredibly important cyclical reset uh, as a human, but but as a gardener as well. And it's, I think because I am a gardener that I am able to see it more than I would have if I wasn't a gardener. And I am incredibly grateful for that attunement um, as a result of this activity that I, that I love. And so, you know, I, I will, um, maybe if you can describe the actual physicality of your farming and your herbalism and then move us into the sabbatical year. But I, I really want you to give us a tangible description of when you say you're a farmer, what does that look like? And when you say you're an herbalist, what does that mean? Sure. So I am living in an urban homestead and we have 23 fruit trees and we're raising chickens. We have an aquaponic um, farming bed as well as a couple of raised beds. We're farming herbs and vegetables. And this year we're following our land because it's the ancient sabbatical year. And so we'll harvest the fruit that's already growing, but we're not actually planting any new plantings this year until September of next year. And like, I love what you were just sharing because I think what's unseen in our calendar is there's no time to really follow and slow down, particularly if you're in this part of Southern California, it's like you blink and you missed fall. Like it's just, <laughs> so the idea of shifting seasons is very subtle. And so tuning into the subtle hues of shift is very powerful and the ancient sabbatical framework is a series of biblical agrarian laws, which connects us back to the verdant fields that would remind us that 
we know there's a time to sow and that there's also a time to reap. But what the, what the framework says is that there's a time to work the land and then there's a time to rest. We kind of forget that in our grinds culture where we always have to just keep on producing and achieving and going hard. And so this emergence idea, um, which was not really practiced um, intensely in, um, in biblical Israel, but is today animating conversations all over the Jewish world and beyond into many um, circles also with Christian scholars. And I would also say there's deep um, resonance between the concept of restoring balance between when to immerse and when to retreat that can be relatable to anybody, whether you have um, a background it's Judeo-Christian or whether you're completely um, disconnected uh, from, from any spiritual practice at all. Like just, it, it doesn't, doesn't require having um, roots in any particular lineage to be able to dance with ideas of like, when should we acquire and when should we return? When should we extract and when should we replenish? When should we forgive debt and when should we rewild and, 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 learn how to how to like shirk off our tame conventional sides that's kind of what we're doing this year in tandem with the earth's cycles yeah so the sabbatical year comes every seven years it is a full year you have described the idea that you would not um, you will harvest the fruit that's already growing, but you won't plant any new plantings. So does that include uh, no annual vegetables, no annual flowers, just letting letting everything in, in that realm just rest? Do you do you not prune trees come winter? Do you to talk about the extent of, of what this then looks like as a gardener and a homesteader uh, for this next 12 months? Mm. Well, the idea of fallowing really is animating all of my work right now. The word, the word sabbatical in Hebrew is shmita. And the practice of releasing, which is the translation of shmita, releasing means that we're not plowing or planting or pruning and we're not harvesting this year. <clears throat> but what we can do are like the very basics to not leave your, your ground neglected. I think there's a big difference between following and neglecting. Okay. And so the idea of like watering and minimal fertilizing and weeding can happen, but we're not going to be selling the crops this year. This idea of, um, of, learning about what grows around you, going out and foraging uh, for, for sacred plants that you have been able to positively identify is part of the, the mandate of the sabbatical. It's like, find your foods. And all foods that you've been growing are accessible to all peoples this year because we take down the fences. So it's, it's a great equalizer between you and your neighbors. You just are in this space where what's mine is yours. 
Um, and so if I can go out and forage, I can take only what I can carry back home to feed my family. I'm not to take home enough to hoard it. I'm not to take home enough that I can actually make money off of it and commodify it. And there's something just very um, empower, empowering um, about what happens when you can trust in that sense of abundance where mm. we don't live in scarcity. We've got to cling the way we have. So many of us have had to during COVID. We've got to cling to that sense of security. Um, we just need it. Right now, this year is like release all of that and go out into the world and share your produce. Share um, what you find, what you glean, what, you, what medicines you make with your community. This is Cultivating Place. We're in conversation today with farmer and teacher Devorah Brous, founder of From Soil to Soul. Her growing work is focused on the importance of regeneration and the role of rest and rejuvenation in regeneration, a very relevant topic as we in the Northern Hemisphere head into winter. We'll be right back after a break. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. So, has my final message to you in these episodes that I have put together leading up to the solstice, I want to quote something you're going to hear from Dev at the end of our conversation. I want you to hear her words twice. As to the power of rest and dormancy and slowing systems in our lives and the lives around us, of leaning into the systems that are slowing down for winter all around us. Quote, tapping into the regenerative currents is something that is universally accessible, like love. My hope, Dev goes on, is that we can learn to resist the culture of urgency by slowing down and having the subtleties of the often overlooked seasonal shifts as they're happening around us. They are happening underneath us in the soil and they're happening within us. And so my work, she says, is really about holding a candle or even shining a torch to help shift our awareness to see what we can't see because oftentimes it is in those subtle gleanings that we can harness the most seismic and ground-mending shifts that are needed in these times, end quote. As we and our gardens here in the Northern Hemisphere head into the spareness and the bareness and the slowness of winter, I want you to think about that ground and energy mending. That is what dormancy, rest, and wintering are all about. It's one of the many great gifts of the garden to us as gardeners. Receive it with gratitude and say 
thank you to your garden on this winter solstice. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This is Cultivating Place. Herbalist, farmer, and gardener Devorah Browse is the founder of From Soil to Soul. Her growing work focuses on regeneration and the importance of rest in our natural cycles. As we come back, we explore more deeply the history of sabbatical in both Western academic and ancient spiritual practices, and how we can cultivate a sabbatical mindset. Most of us don't have the luxury of letting our fields fallow for an entire year. And we probably also don't have access to taking a sabbatical from work for an entire year. Like the idea of sabbatical that we've been speaking about Today is really the ancient embodiment of the sabbatical tradition. But the way sabbatical is practiced in our culture is you know, stemming from the, the, the late 1800s in Harvard, where, where, where it was a gift to the greatest minds um, to give back after they have harvested so much of their own right, um, right. intelligence. They have, were able to receive some time to recalibrate and rejuvenate. And like, we so need that, but that's not um, something that has easy access for mm-hmm. most people. In fact, less than 4% of the corporations in our country will offer a sabbatical that's paid. So if you want to take a sabbatical, that's really something for the pedigree. And the idea of the ancient sabbatical is the opposite. It's for the collective. And mm. so it's about a really great, period of stillness to zoom out and reflect on, in some cases, like what systems need to be let go of, what systems are not working and serving our communities anymore, what what institutions have no more relevance in today's world that need to be released and let go of, what practices are not serving us, and what innovative new ideas are emerging that we can we can study. And so like the, the ancient sabbatical practices are also calling for us to forgive debt this year. So to, to release the age old idea um, that we owe someone else. Cause that weight is like the, the, the students of this country are carrying the, the, the burden of $1 trillion of student debt. And, and imagine this year um, and every seven years, stepping into a rhythm of six and one. Right now we're, we're capstoning the past six years by looking at you know, who do I owe money to and who do I owe favors to that I can release. And, and, and the same is true for the opposite side of that. Like, can I ask for forgiveness and release of debt in this, in these arenas. Like it's a debt is, a debt is, um, it's both financial and emotional. And I think because we're not actually required to practice the laws of the sabbatical, because we live in the diaspora, we get to animate our own um, exploration of this spiritual exercise 
and take it to the direction of, of, of the plants and come back from that place of, of abundance and this idea of sharing. Like, like my fruit trees are producing hundreds of pounds of fruit this year. And that it, it's not possible for one family to eat all the fruit that one fruit tree produces. Like by nature of... <laughs> By, by nature, these trees are producing in order for us to harvest and share out. And sort of we've lost our sense of how to do that because we're busy trying to harvest in order to sell and commodify the relationship that we have with nature. And it's such a, you know, clearly very few people. Um, you, you, you can, I know several, uh, several people in, in my sort of adjacent world are practicing sabbatical in some modified form this year. Uh, and they have chosen to do so not out of an abundance of financial resources, but out of an intentional decision to use less, to need less, to, um, to, to choose that sabbatical, even though it is a, a difficult choice and will require, you know, a lot of sacrifices on one level, but will, as you say, reap a lot of reward in other ways. Rest of the mind, rest of the soul, rest from this constant productivity um, that we ask of ourselves, of our gardens, of our communities, um, of our economy, of our politics, all of the above. And, and I, I just like this idea that it doesn't have to be all or nothing. It can be a decision to say, I want to practice this ancient and sacred idea of sabbatical in this cyclical way, just like I sleep at night, just like I try to take one day of rest in the week, whether or not that's a church going day or not, like most people try and take a day where they are just at home with their family, with themselves, with their own desires, um, rather than, you know, meeting the demands of a workplace or family life or whatever it might be. And so this idea that there is you know, not, and then again, we have winter. So we have, you know, night, we have a weekly rest day, we have a yearly rest season to, to have one that's that one step further out, I think is analogous to trying to pull our perspectives out further and further from our own individual lives and needs to that of the, the collective and the global over the long run, not just a day, not just a week, not just a year, but over the millennia so that we make better choices from the past to help support the future. And I think this again is one of the greatest gifts of gardening is that it can't be done in a day or a week, or a month. It's it's something that you do again and again over the years. And, you know, just starting from what you, you started with, this idea of a taproot to plant a tree is to, you know, is to understand that this is the long picture, not the short picture. It's so compelling, your framing. Um, it, it reminds me that this idea of stepping back into seven-year cycles, hmm. it, it feeds into the Jubilee. Because once we've done seven cycles of sabbatical, then mm -hmm. 
we've come to really understand like how we can get the clarity that we need in order to better strategize to tackle the most seismic like racial and economic injustices and the climate crisis that we face. We can't see clearly right now, just so inside all of it that oftentimes, you know, we're reactionary. And if that's like, you know, grabbing for synthetic fertilizers to, to handle a quick invest, you know, an infestation more quickly, it's, it's, we're, we're tending to be more reactionary. And what you've just shared really is the, I think the primary motivating rationale for practicing um, sabbatical consciousness. It's like step back and, and imagine a multi-year strategy for managing your garden or for managing small-scale farms, homesteads. Um, practice um, like thinking in a, a wider lens, not just about the yes. trees that we've been talking about, but the forest and the health yes. and vitality of the forest. So we can zoom out and understand intersectional alliances more clearly. I really think of it as um, an invitation to align mind and heart, body and soul with the regenerative currents of the earth. And I think we lose that when we're on our screens all, all day and all night. Right. Yeah. I think you've shared what, what you, your hopes are for the greatest impact of this work, greater clarity, greater maturity, greater, more intentional, um, strategy, um, and also just a greater lightness to how we approach any of this. Is there anything you would like to add about the sacredness of this time of year, uh, the, the sacredness of the idea of rest and fallow and wintering, um, as well as sabbatical and the importance to that, to, to you as a gardener in this world at this time? Mm -hmm. uh, while, while most of us have a small stake in the land where our housing has been built, the majority of land has been um, held by a very small percentage of the U.S. population. And so I really love thinking about what would happen if we could have a community-led truth and reconciliation process so we could examine ways of kind of re repairing the cleavages that exist between us, between our parcels of land, and what reparations and land back could look like if we were to release our stronghold on land. And I know it's, it's like almost unfathomable to imagine into multi-year strategies um, that the sabbatical is calling for, seven-year cycles and such, when it's like people are dealing with such intense day-to-day -day trauma today, it's hard to even make a seven-week plan. Um, but both the Torah of the sabbatical and the founding document of the Iroquois Confederacy that animated the seventh generation framework, they both lift up the same idea of kind of, we are accountable for what happens 140 years from now. And so I love the idea of thinking that if the biggest landowners and the congregations and the corporate campuses and the 
the, the people were to engage with what returning or tithing 10% of the land could look like um, in seven year action plans, you know, we could be giving real, a real possibility to this idea of reparations that can do so much healing across the lands. And so what I'd really love to see on a macro level is more, more of this audacious um, dreaming and organizing across faith lines. And, and then on a nano level, what I would hold close to heart is this idea that urgency is continuing to really swap out people for results in our culture today. And it's done in the name of innovation. It's also done in the name of social and environmental change. It's necessary, but that tapping like into the regenerative currents is something that's universally accessible. It's like love. Um, and my hope <clears throat> is that we can learn to resist the culture of urgency by slowing down and tapping the subtleties of the often overlooked seasonal shifts. Um, they're happening around us, they're happening underneath us in the soil, and they're happening within us. And so my work is really about kind of holding a candle or even shining a torch to help shift our awareness to see what we can't see. Because oftentimes it is in those subtle gleanings that we can harness the most seismic and ground mending shifts that are needed in these times. So just learning to not just notice the big changes, but slowing down to tap into the most subtle hues of change. Just to end, I'd love to bring us back to that understanding that land is holy, all land is holy. It's our place of belonging. It's the place that we all come from and that we all go back to. And land remains at the heart center of the great divide between people who have resources and people who do not. And land carries the blood and the bone and the memory of everything from degeneration to endless bounty. It is our past and it is our future. It's an asset for the commons. Shared terrain is sacred ground. And in the face of the climate crisis, it feels no less than imperative for us to reevaluate our relationship to the earth's resources. And so this quote from the Just Transition Movement is so powerful, I'd love to share it. Our movements must be irresistible and rooted in the wisdom of our ancestries. Knowledge resides in the relationship to soil, song, and story. If we engage our hands in the soil, and our voices in the songs, we will begin to find our way home. 
Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very grateful. Devorah Brous is the founder of From Soil to Soul, where she studies and guides regeneration from the garden up on multiple levels. As she writes, For me, from soil to soul means knowing the patterns of nature and our own natural patterning. It means unlearning destructive cycles and crafting new cycles that revere stillness and silence degeneration to follow the inner and outer landscapes. Join us again next week when we're in conversation with Gary Nabhan, first-generation Lebanese-American gardener, ecologist, ethnobotanist, and ecumenical Franciscan brother. A pioneer in the local food and heirloom seed-saving movements, Gary frequently focuses on the biodiversity and cultural diversity of the binational American Southwest. Listen in next week. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio. It's made possible in part by listeners just like you through the support button at cultivatingplace.com and by partner support from the California Native Plant Society and the American Horticultural Society. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler and producer and development director Sarah Bohannon. We're grateful for tech and web support from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.